What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 59, St. Edmund and the Fall of East Anglia. Following the major shifts in the international power balance, which occurred in the late 820s, following the fall of Beowulf and the ascendancy of Edgbert of Wessex, East Anglia entered into its final period of independence. It did so under the leadership of a new king, who seemingly had little connection to the realm's historical dynasty. That didn't stop him and his heirs, though, from presiding over about four decades of seeming peace and prosperity before finally calamity again struck the kingdom. The rebel king who restored East Anglian independence, Athelstan, is one of the many frustratingly obscure figures in East Anglian history. He's not mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, nor have any documents of his reign survived. Instead, Athelstan's coins are the main source for his reign. Athelstan led the East Anglians at a precarious time. With the rise of Edgbert, there must have been great pressure for him to submit to West Saxon overlordship. The power of this overlordship was curtailed, though, in 830, when Wilaf, the Mercian king who Edgbert deposed in 829, returned to his throne in Tamworth and seemingly reached some kind of agreement with the West Saxons, which limited their influence north of the Thames. Around this time, Athelstan seems to have begun his prolific project of minting coins. These coins reflect a marked change from earlier East Anglian efforts, and in their style, the long-lasting impacts of Mercian rule are evident. Runes, for example, were no longer used, and the coins are stylistically very similar to those issued by Chailwolf of Mercia, featuring as they do the royal name and title encircling an abstract profile of the king on one side, and the name of the Munia written across multiple left-to-right columns on the other. They also bear some stylistic similarities to Offa's coinage, such as the tendency among some of Athelstan's moneyers to abbreviate Rex Anglorum, or Rex Anglia, on his coins rather than simply titling him Rex. The coinage indicates that Athelstan, despite being seemingly an independent East Anglian king, was probably not a member of the Wuffingers dynasty, and thus didn't try to tie himself to them in a public propagandistic way. Possibly, although this is pure speculation on my part, the style of his coins might indicate that he was of Mercian stock, or from a background influenced more by Mercian than East Anglian traditions, possibly some kind of noble elevated by the Mercians. Whatever his background, Athelstan seemingly enjoyed a lengthy reign from around 827 to about 845. During this time, East Anglia remained largely independent, and the sheer volume of Athelstan's coinage indicates that it continued to be a wealthy kingdom, likely due to the prominence of its coastal wicks, such as Ipswich. The brewing tensions between Mercia and Wessex probably also helped the kingdom remain somewhat on the sidelines of international politics at this time. Athelstan most likely died in the mid-840s and was succeeded by Athelwerd. Like Athelstan, who was probably his father or otherwise some relative, Athelwerd seems to have enjoyed a reign free from Mercian or West Saxon aggression. Certainly no incursions into East Anglia by either kingdom are recorded at this time. 
He also continued his father's minting spree, producing coins that resembled those of his predecessor stylistically. Again, because of the damage wrought by Danish invaders, next to nothing substantive is known about Athelwerd's reign. In 855, according to later tradition, he was succeeded by his son Edmund, about whom we can say significantly more, but mostly because of various legends which sprang up around him following his death. Coin-wise, Edmund made use of several moneyers who had also served Athelwerd, a fact which indicates a smooth transition of power. Edmund's coins were also of a type with those of his two predecessors. In truth, it isn't for anything that he did during his reign, though, that Edmund is famous. Rather, he's famous for his death at the hands of everyone's favourite early medieval pirates, the Vikings. Ever since the raid on Lindisfarne in 793, Scandinavian raiders had gradually become more audacious in the targets they chose in England. While they started raiding isolated coastal monasteries, by the mid-840s they had begun wintering in England, thereby extracting more resources from English communities during the winter months when sailing was too perilous. As the wealth of Viking raids filtered back to Scandinavia, more and more young men saw an opportunity to earn renown and wealth overseas. What began as largely smash-and-grab plundering campaigns began to morph into more colonial ventures. In England, this new intensity in Viking activity began in full force in 865, when a force of about 3,000 Scandinavians landed in East Anglia with the intent of extracting greater amounts of plunder than ever before. This force, so infamous that the chroniclers writing two decades later called it the Great Heathen Army, would be responsible for overrunning most of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms within only a matter of years. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, listeners. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, and when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts by pledging to one or more of the show's patron tiers. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a shout-out to Rachel Jordan and Vida McDonald. Thank you both so much for your support, and I hope that you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. The Great Heathen Army spent their first winter in East Anglia before marching north to raid Northumbria. In 867, it again turned south and sought to extract tribute from the Mercians. After the Mercians came to terms with the invaders, in 868, the army again returned to East Anglia, where it established a base near Thetford. Edmund, unwilling to pay off the Danes, sought to drive them out. However, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle relates that the East Anglians were crushed by the Norsemen and Edmund was killed. His remains were allegedly buried in a simple wooden chapel. Following this, the invaders conquered the stunned kingdom and set up tributary rulers who owed their positions to the newcomers and thus turned a blind eye to their raiding and settlement. This defeat and the death of Edmund is generally regarded as the end of East Anglia as an independent kingdom. It would remain under various forms of Scandinavian control until 918, when it was finally incorporated into the newly formed Kingdom of England. The death of Edmund swiftly became the stuff of legend. In truth, we do not know where or how the king died, but even while the Danes still ruled East Anglia, the cult of his sainthood and his reputation as a martyr became prominent enough that the heirs of the men who killed him had to give material support to it. Evidence survives that already by 890, Edmund was being venerated as a saint. In that year, the Dane Guthrum, who had been awarded the kingship of East Anglia as part of his peace settlement with King Alfred, passed away. His moneyers responded by minting a unique run of coins in the name of Saint Edmund Rex. Stylistically, these coins were modelled closely on those produced during Edmund's reign. The St. Edmund Memorial coins were minted in great quantities by a group of more than 70 moneyers, most of whom seem to have originated in continental Europe. In total, over 2,000 examples of the memorial coins have been found, an extraordinarily large number, and they seem to have circulated widely in the eastern half of the Danelaw, the area of central and northern England which saw the most pronounced Scandinavian settlement. These St. Edmund coins continued to be minted until around the time that East Anglia was incorporated into the Kingdom of England. They also attest to the popularity of Edmund's emerging cult, and possibly are reflective of some kind of move for divine intervention on behalf of the people of the Danelaw. Such penitential coinage has some precedent, especially in later Anglo-Saxon England, so this explanation for where these coins come from isn't entirely unrealistic, even if we don't know what precisely was the impetus for their creation. The popular cult of Edmund bubbled away under the surface of English official religion until the late 10th century. 
For two years, from 985 to 987, a Frankish monk by the name of Abbo served as the teacher at the recently established monastery of Ramsey in the Fens of Cambridgeshire. While here, Abbo heard the story of Edmund and was so taken with it that he composed a complex Latin account of his death called the Passio Sancti Edmundi. It is Abbo's version of the story that established Edmund's status as a martyr in the eyes of the English church. Abbo also claimed that Edmund consciously chose not to engage the Danes in battle, instead favouring a martyr's death. Edmund was captured and tied to a tree, at which point the Danes proceeded to fill him with arrows. He was then decapitated, and his head was thrown off into the underbrush. Later, Edmund's followers, unaware that their king was dead, were searching for him, calling out, Where are you, friend? Suddenly, they heard their king's voice calling back to them again, Here! Here! They rushed to where they heard the voice, and saw Edmund's severed head clasped between the forepaws of a great wolf. The beast was keeping it safe from all other animals, and when it saw the followers, it got up and padded off into the trees. The head, and what else could be recovered of the king, was stored in a small wooden chapel, which became the focus of his emerging cult. Historically, this is almost certainly all fantasy. Nothing in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says Edmund refused to fight the Danes, or that he was martyred. Abbo's account instead reflects the decades of folklore that had grown up around the king's memory. Yet Abbo's version of the events also served to cement Edmund as a preeminent saint of the Anglo-Saxon church, and one of the main saints venerated by advocates of monastic reform in the late 10th century. Abbo is also the first to tell us that Edmund's relics were translated from the small woodland chapel to a settlement called Beodericsworth. This new centre of the Edmund cult began to attract so much wealth and patronage on account of the legend and its growing popularity that eventually the settlement's name transformed into Bury St Edmunds. The relics of Edmund have quite the globe-trotting history following the Norman Conquest, but I won't touch on that now. Rather, I'll close by commenting on the strange coincidence that Edmund, a king about whom we know almost nothing, became one of the most well-known and discussed saints of later Anglo-Saxon England. The truth of the martyrdom story must be in doubt, as must most of the so-called facts spread about him. However, Edmund's obscure life and death in some ways mirror that of East Anglia itself. The very Vikings who killed him destroyed most of the written material which could shed light on the history of this kingdom. In the vacuum they created, we have some notable myth-making and some prominent figures, but the truth is forever lost to us. However, even in the myths and the uncertainty, the legacy of the kingdom lives on in its landscape, much as does Edmund's memory. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join me again next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.